Welcome back to the Untold Civil War Podcast. And on this episode, we'll be taking you back to that forgotten front in Kentucky. But before we do that, I'd like to give a big shout out to my Patreon supporters. And I'd like to especially thank the sponsor of this show, The Badge Maker. Are you a Civil War reenactor? Living historian? Or just a fan of the Civil War? Then in addition to listening to the ever-astounding Untold Civil War podcast, why not check out The Badge Maker? at www.civilwarcorebadges.com. The Badge Maker is the provider of all Civil War Corps badges and also ID discs and a variety of other insignia and personal items you won't find anywhere else. That's the Badge Maker at www.civilwarcorebadges.com, a proud supporter of the Untold Civil War Podcast. And now, without further ado, leave that saber behind Replace it with an extra revolver. Mount up, and let's join Morgan on a raid on some untold civil war. I'm here with Daryl Smith, who runs Walking with History. This is a company that specializes in tours and presentations in regards to Perryville, Augusta, and Cynthiana, which happens to be the topic of ours today. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, just real quick, how long have you been giving these tours and presentations? Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been doing tours at Perryville for at least 10 years, and they got started um, when I was about 50 pounds lighter and hiking a lot. I took hiking groups down there because they had expanded their hiking trails to that point to seven miles. I think they're up to like 16 or 18 miles now of hiking trails at Perryville. And that morphed into, you know, because we would go down and hike the trails, but then I would also talk about the hill. And so people were like, oh, that's an interesting, you know, kind of diametric that you're doing. And so then I opened it up to the public and then I had some great help down there. Kurt Holman, the former manager, Chuck, uh, Chuck Lott, who's a wonderful historian down there, a local guy. Uh, they kind of helped get that going as well. We, we put it out there on Facebook, we put out on hiking groups. I think in one tour, I had as many as 60 people show up with all kinds of different age groups. And we just, you know, we just went out and had fun on the battlefield. We did a session in the morning broke for lunch and then did a session in the afternoon. And that kind of morphed into then uh, me starting the company. My wife pushed me in a good way into that, uh, where uh, we, Chuck and I did a, and he really led it, by, I was long for the ride. We co-hosted a, a Perryville tour, like a two and a half day tour for a Michigan round table. And they picked up the tab, like for everything. And I wasn't expecting that, right? I, whatever. And my wife's like, see, you can get paid at doing this. Now, you know, I'd have to do tours every single day to make a living. That's never going to happen. But I'm like, well, this is kind of fun. And that morphed into, well, let me do some talks, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just, I would call it a hobby, right? Um, I work full time for, a, for a, a large bank. So, but it's a, it's a hobby. So, um, you know, I just kind of do it on the side. And, you know, I'm, I'm really flexible when somebody wants to do a tour. I try to uh, you know, accommodate what they're looking for and, and just try to make it as interesting to them, depending on their level. I had a group of people come from Portland, Oregon, a few years ago. They, were, they have relatives here in Cincinnati and they wanted to go tour a Civil War battlefield. And they came across the site. I took them down there and we had a grand time. You know, they knew nothing about the Civil War, but then, you know, we're just telling stories and we're just having a grand time. So we, I, I'll morph it and adjust things as people need to. Uh, I mean, I can do Perryville in a, in a day or I can do Perryville in three days. It depends on how much detail you want to have. And one of the tours that you do give is Cynthiana, right? The uh, battles mm -hmm. that occur there. 
Uh, this is a great topic because, you know, I, I advertise myself as the untold civil war. And even this is a topic that, you know, is very untold even to me. So could you tell me where is Cynthiana? And uh, could you give us some of the early era, areas history, that sort of thing? Yeah, I can do the, the where it is it better than I can probably do the early era, uh, early area history. But Cynthiana is 60 miles south of Cincinnati along U.S. Highway 27, not, not an interstate, but U.S. Highway 27. It is 60 rail miles from Cincinnati. It was um, Kentucky Central Railroad, which is, now has a modern name, of course, but the Kentucky Central Railroad ran from just across Cincinnati down through and to Lexington and ended at Nicholasville. It would have been a major supply route for any Union advance through Cumberland Gap and into East Tennessee, which of course we know that Lincoln, that was a pet project of Lincoln's. So it was a supply route, not nearly as famous or as long, or maybe as even important as the Louisville National Railroad. So it's a, that's an important aspect of why Cynthiana. Early history, yeah, I'm not as well versed. I, in the area, um, there's a site called Ruddles Mills. There was an old, they called them settlements or forts or whatever you wanted to call them back in the day. Kentucky got settled. And there was the quote, quote, Indian massacre. It's interesting when the Indians win, it's called a massacre. And uh, when the whites win, it's a battle. But that, that occurred just a few miles south of Cynthiana. Um, it is on the northern cusp of the bluegrass. So the bluegrass is this rolling, beautiful terrain, massive horse farms, all surrounding Lexington, Kentucky. And Harrison County, which Cynthiana is the county seat of, um, Harrison County is on that northern cusp. Cynthiana is like right at the north edge. If you go north from Cynthiana, it's really, the, the elevation changes a lot. It's more drastic. South is very much more rolling. So it's got this kind of mixed feel to it as well. Um, it is called Cynthiana because one of the founders, his daughters, one was Cynthia and the other one was Anna. And I took the two names allegedly and slapped them together and hence Cynthiana. Interesting enough though, I have found other Cynthianas. There's a Cynthiana, Ohio. So I don't know if that's really the story or not. Um, <laughs> right. and, and geographically, it, it's a hub town. It's, it's got several roads that run as a hub around it, much like a Perryville or like a Gettysburg to give uh, listeners a better uh, example. You've got just these different roads that go out in all different directions, whether it's going north to Cincinnati, um, north uh, east to Hayesville, south to Paris, which is the next county uh, south, uh, Bourbon County, for those of you who like Bourbon, or uh, the Leesburg Pike, which runs towards Lexington and Georgetown. So it's got all these different pikes around it as well. Today, I think the county and the town altogether is like 14,000 or 15,000 people. It's a, it's a small city, I guess, for lack of a better term, or a large town. Maybe a large town is better. Just to take a step back, who is John Hunt Morgan? Because he's going to play a major role in our story here. <laughs> Paul, I'm going to ask a favor. We're never going to call him John Hunt Morgan again. Okay. The reason why, you can't find a single Civil War reference where he was ever called John Hunt Morgan, except in one poem or song ballad. That's the only ah. thing I can find the entire war the, the hunt name is in after right it, it, it's like it's what we do with every civil war general right don carlos buell you yeah. know all the, i mean we we always put the third name right the little name right. there and i think that's what happens with with morgan as well anyway uh mr morgan is a uh, actually he's an alabama native he's born in huntsville alabama uh, 1825 but his parents are kentuckians uh as a matter of fact he's born in huntsville 
there's a connection there. There's a reason. John's grandfather is John Wesley Hunt, purported to be the richest man west of the Allegheny Mountains. And he makes his fortune in a variety of businesses, but John Wesley Hunt is a greater Lexington scion. And so at a young age, um, John's family picks up and, and leaves. They leave Huntsville. His, his father, Calvin, is not a very successful businessman. So they moved to the Lexington area to come under the wing, or you may say the shadow, of, of John's grandfather, John Wesley Hunt. And so John Morgan, John H. Morgan, uh, grows up in this central Kentucky bluegrass region. Um, you know, he's uh, gentrified, you know, that, that sort of mentality, that sort of upbringing, the, the thoroughbreds and the, the whiskey and the chasing women, or I should say the bourbon, and chasing women. And it, those things are all part of this whole genteel type of society that he grows up in. He gets into business himself a little bit, uh, but then the Mexican-American War breaks out too in 1848. So he joins a Kentucky volunteer uh, cavalry unit, cavalry regiment, and will see service at the Battle of Buena Vista in 1847. When he gets done with his Mexican-American War service, he really wants to, he wants to serve in the military. He wants a military career. He is unable to obtain a, an appointment to West Point. Um, at one point, I also do believe he tries to get into the U.S. United States Marine Corps as an officer and, and cannot, can, cannot do that. You know, between the Mexican-American War and the Civil War, that, that armed force shrunk right back down again. And so there was, wasn't a lot of opportunity. But he did raise initially an artillery uh, unit, then an infantry unit, the Lexington Rifles in Lexington. But these pre-war militia units are, you know, they're really more social aspects, right? They're more avenues for, for these guys to yet again get together, uh, swap stories, uh, drink, trace women, whatever the case may be. More as a successful businessman, uh, various industries, hemp, slaves, anything really to do with agriculture as well. And so he's a fairly successful businessman and he, um, he is married shortly before the war. His wife will pass away. His first wife, I should say, will pass away in June of 1861. I could have that wrong. I apologize. She had been sickly for a long time prior to that, but she'll pass away uh, in 1861. And, you know, Morgan is still taking care of business. He does not join the Confederacy when the Confederacy starts in April and May of 1861. Of course, Kentucky is neutral. We say neutral with quotes around it because both Confederates and Federals are they're recruiting within the state. Um, but he stays neutral. As a matter of fact, there is a pre-war letter that he writes to his brother about we, and I'm paraphrasing, we need to give Lincoln a chance. This is like 1860, he writes this letter. We need to give Lincoln a chance to see how he does. Now, if he does any overt action against South, then that's when we take up arms. But we need to give Lincoln a chance. I thought that was an interesting uh, comment when I came across that quote. And so you know, he doesn't join the Confederacy right away. I think part of it is, you know, his wife had passed away. So I think you, know, you respect a little mourning period. He has to do that. He's got businesses and Kentucky's still neutral. But when the neutrality phase is over with in early September of 1861, he throws his lot in with the Confederacy. Um, Kentucky had voted in pretty much a pro-union legislature in August of 1861. And so when the opportunity had, they, of course, went pro-union uh, in September. And then so Morgan will take a big chunk of his Lexington rifles. They'll go down to Mumfordville, um, Kentucky, and they'll start to form a, a squadron of cavalry. And by the time Shiloh comes around, 
he has a squadron. He fights at the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, there's a mounted charge that his unit involved with. So he's, he's caught this spirit again. But after Shiloh, something changes in terms of how his command will fight. Um, he, he, he has, I think because he was unable to secure a, a, an appointment to West Point or anywhere else, he didn't have to learn, he didn't learn the book, right? He didn't have to go in and learn, you know, okay, in this situation, what do I do? In this situation, what do I do? So I think it allows him to have a little bit more free thinking uh, amongst his subordinates uh, to allow uh, different tactics to be developed and morphed. He used a lot of the mounted rifleman tactics uh, from like the War of 1812 and from the Mexican-American War. So but he'll have a cavalry squadron at Shiloh. They are on horseback. They are traditional cavalry, you know, fighting with sabers. After that, they will morph themselves into mounted infantry. And so when we talk about Morgan's Cav, it's really Morgan's mounted infantry. You know, they ride to battle. They typically dismount. They can still fight on horseback if needed, but they typically dismounted. As a matter of fact, if you were um, like a private or a corporal and you showed up to join Morgan's command and you had a saber, you get laughed at. They're like, we don't use those. They preferred, uh, you know, a brace of pistols if they could get one, uh, you know, two pistols, at least one pistol. Preferred the short band Enfield because uh, it was easy to carry, but still had good range. They could fight other infantry if they needed to. Um, the command would usually have some sort of light artillery attached. At the first battle of Cynthiana, they will have two six-pound mountain howitzers. So things are changing for, for Morgan, and he becomes popular as well. There are raids that happen uh, before Shiloh, small ones, but it's that period of where both the Union and the South both needed good news because it had been a long time since Bull Run, a long time since Wilson's Creek, and not a whole lot else was going on for the Confederacy, and definitely not a whole lot was going on for the Union. That's why no, no springs, a small battle is like, oh, we're, we're, so, you know, we're so glad we won that battle, hail, hail. Well, it's the same thing on the Confederate side. His little raids become blown in proportion. They're successful, but they're small. You know, a bridge here, railroad trestles there. And so command morphs. He does more raids in 1862. Uh, we'll talk about First Cynthiana here in just a second. He does more raids in 1862. The command is trained in mounted infantry tactics. He has with him his brother-in-law, Basil Duke, and a um, and, a, and an English soldier of fortune guy by the name of uh, George St. Ledger Grenfell. And Grenfell had fought in the Indian mutiny with uh, Garibaldi in South America, uh, in, the, in Algeria. I mean, this guy is all over the place. And so those two men were bringing tactics and discipline to Morgan's command. Now, discipline being a relative thing because Morgan's not known for discipline in his command, but they're the ones who are bringing that to this command. So through the summer, early summer, of 1862, he's uh, sent over and he joins Edmund Smith's command uh, out of Knoxville. And they really start to recruit. They recruit up to a, almost a complete regiment, the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry. A couple other units attach themselves to Morgan's command. He has a small 1,000 man brigade by July 4th of 1862 when the first raid, the first Kentucky raid kicks off. With that as a, a sort of background, how does Morgan end up focusing on Cynthiana? He's familiar with the area, for one thing. Cynthiana is only uh, 20, 25 miles from Lexington. As I mentioned, it's on that northern cusp of the bluegrass. Um, he has business dealings there prior to the war. 
Uh, I mentioned the road hub. So, you know, any map is going to show that Cynthia has got this spiral of road network around it. He had served in a state guard encampment in 860 there. So he's got just this connection, right? And he can raid anywhere he wants to raid. But I think, you know, he's at Cynthiana, Washington, and then to Cynthiana, he can go in different directions. He can threaten Cincinnati if there's no force in his way. Like I said before, he can move towards Maysville, right along the Ohio River, or he can work his way back out of the state easily enough, depending on who is pursuing him and how aggressively. So it's, it's not, I don't think, intended that he's going to go there and have a fight. I think it is more intended that it just happens that way. He knows the road network. Um, he can also get supplies there. There was a union encampment just north of town um, that had some supplies at it, it, there. Um, of course, you could get supplies from town itself. And Harrison County, Kentucky is mostly pro-Confederate. So there's support there as well. Early in the war of the first 11 infantry companies that's raised from the county, nine of them will join the Confederacy. And we're only talking 60 miles away from Cincinnati, Ohio. So it's, a, it's, it's definitely a pro-Southern town. I'll give a quick pitch. There is a wonderful book that has been, has been written on the Civil War history of Harrison County. Good friend of mine, Bill Penn, William Penn wrote it. Initially came out uh, in 1995. He revamped it, uh, and now it's called Kentucky Rebel Town, and it came out in 2016. It's UK Press. It's an excellent local history. It has um, sections on both the first and second battles, but it gives you all this detail as to why he called the, the book Kentucky Rebel Town. You really can pick up on that. So while there are strong economic ties to the north, they, they have strong southern ties because Kentuckians, for the most part, are Virginian. So there's also that aspect that goes to it. So I think he's just moving through the countryside and winds up getting to Cynthiana. And then there happens to be a Union force there and a fight breaks out. So he's, he's conducting various raids. It leads him eventually to Cynthiana. And there is this small uh, Union force there. What's facing him over there when he gets there? Well, uh, he, he will backtrack just a hair. Um, when launches his raid on July 4th, He'll move across northern Tennessee to Sparta and then come up through, I would call it like western central Kentucky. So he'll come up through like Tompkinsville, have a small skirmish there, wind up at Horse Cave, which is near Mammoth Cave, that, that area, work his way across country. Eventually he'll get to Harrodsburg, Kentucky, which is southwest of Lexington. And at Harrodsburg, the women pour out in support of Morgan and his command to the point where they want clips of his hair. And then when they can't get that, they start clipping his horse's hair. And then catches himself. Wow. He, he starts to give a speech. And he's not known for speeches. He starts to give a speech and he winds up backtracking, going, Oh my gosh, I'm giving a speech. And then like just storms away because you know he gets embarrassed. But this outpouring of support, I think, is very misleading. I noticed I said women come out and support. I didn't say anything about the men. He'll get to Georgetown by July 16th. That's the day before Cynthiana. He'll get to Georgetown on July 16th. And I think because he'd gone through Harrodsburg the day before, he will have a telegram sent back down to Kirby Smith saying, and it's that infamous or famous, depending on what side, that 25,000 to 30,000 Kentuckians will rise up and join the Confederate Army if you bring an, an army into Kentucky. July 16th is kind of the beginning of the Perryville campaign. Now, Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg, they're hearing it also from various Kentucky politicians and powerful families about 
how they're being repressed in Kentucky. I always think about Monty Python when I use that. And, and, but it's, this is like that tipping point. They get a telegram saying, look, you're going to add 25,000 or 30,000 men to your command. Kirby Smith meets with Bragg, and then bam, here comes the Perryville campaign. The next day, July 17th, it's the uh, middle of the afternoon. It is hotter than Hades. They are marching up the dusty road outside of Georgetown, and they're moving their way to Siena. The force that's in front of them, back to your original question, um, is a small force. It is mostly home guard. So this, this is local militia, local companies from each county, home guard, and 100 civilians that were quote unquote impressed into service. So there's 350, 400 Union troops facing off against a little over 900 Confederates. Um, the Confederates were recruiting on the way. They raised a new company out of Georgetown. And so again, I think there's the support, this false support that's happening along the way. And Morgan's got with him also, not only his um, core of the second Kentucky Cav, but he also has Texans with him, Tennesseans with him, and Georgians as well. The Texans purportedly wearing sombreros and carrying big Bowie knives. So um, he's got this mixed force that's, that's approaching Cynthiana. They get there in the, the very hot afternoon of July the 17th, and a fight breaks out. Now, Cynthiana, geographically, the heart of town is north of the south bank, the south fork of the Licking River. There's more modern towns south of that now today, but to the south of town in 1862, that was all open farm fields, that kind of thing. Morgan will split his command into three parts. Um, he will send the Texans and Tennesseans around to the east. He'll send the Georgians with one company of Kentuckians around to the west, all the way around to the north, and they will sack that camp I alluded to er earlier for supplies. And then Morgan will take the heart of his second Kentucky cavalry with Basil Duke right up the middle, and they'll go towards the cover bridge at Cynthiana. They have a difficult crossing the bridge. They can't get across. They, they, they will launch mounted assaults trying to get across this narrow 300-foot uh, covered bridge and covered sides as well. Well, that force uh, that I alluded to from the Union side also has a 12-pounder howitzer. And the 12-pounder howitzer is being served by firemen from Cincinnati. They are wearing their red fire shirts. The 12-pounder howitzer was donated or borrowed from Miles Greenwood's foundry in Cincinnati. And so these, these guys are firing grape shot, canister, whatnot. Every time Confederates try to poke their nose across that bridge, they are shelling the living daylights out of them. Uh, Duke will say how well that, that that artillery crew was serving their gun. And here these are guys, they're firemen. They had never served artillery in their lives, as far as I know. And there's also the home guard are also strung out on the north side, north bank in brick homes, stone homes, stone businesses. So Morgan's having a difficult time getting across. Eventually, Company C will launch a mounted charge. They'll get across the bridge. Companies A and B will wade across the river. The river is about waist deep. So you can't really get across it very quickly. There is a ford there that they discover as well. So they can get across. They get across. They will push the home guard towards the railroad depot, which was a two-story brick building. Um, home, the home guard will hole up in that area. They'll also, the home guard will be in the courthouse. And some of the home guard will be in what's called the new Rankin house, which was a three-story massive building that was being built. Well, by this point, Gonneau with his, uh, Richard Montgomery Gonneau, who 
was residing in Texas, but is originally a, a Kentuckian. He's bringing those Texans and Tennesseans around from the east. And then uh, the Georgians are coming around from the north. So by this point, the Home Guard and those 100 or so impressed civilians, they're surrounded. So they'll start surrendering. But before they start surrendering, the overall commander is John J. Landrum, who is actually Lieutenant Colonel of the 18th Kentucky. He'll either ride from the depot to the new Rankin house because he wants to use that three-story building to see what's going on all around the periphery. And before he gets there, he's accosted by some Confederate officers who demand his surrender. He says, I never surrendered. He fires three rounds from his pistol, pretty short range, hits a Confederate officer in the chest three times, peels off and rides away. They chase him for 10 miles, but evidently Landrum's horse was better. That Confederate officer survives, which that's just mind-blowing to me. But now the men at the depot, they're surrendering. The men in the new Rankin house, they're surrendering. And the men now over at the courthouse, they're also surrendering. Um, there's also some raw recruits there as well, about 75 men from the 7th Kentucky USA Cavalry, but they're carrying carbines, the Gallagher carbine, which is just a worst piece of whatever. Rounds will get stuck in the chamber there or in the, in the breach. And so they all start surrendering. And that fighting lasts maybe an hour and a half altogether. The casualties on both sides are relatively small. You know, you're talking 25-ish on both sides. Of course, a lot of prisoners that Morgan will parole and here becomes now on July 17th, just a day after he sends that telegram, on July 17th, he will ask those home guard guys, hey, come join my command. I was led to believe that you would join. Not a, one of them would join. And so he makes this about, well, I, I, I thought you would join me, but if you won't join me, at least don't fight against me. Here's your parole. And so it's interesting. I think we're already seeing the turn of Kentuckians aren't going to support you, right? The, the maximum amount of men that he could recruit, I think he got maybe 100 guys uh, all together on this raid. And the raid, about four days and 1,000 miles, allegedly. And so he stays there the night of the 17th. He will ride to Paris in the heart of Bourbon Street because it's Bourbon County the next day. And finally, the Union forces are, there's a pursuit finally getting close to him and confused, unorganized, unmotivated, any, any other unterm you want to use. But finally, when he's in Paris, there's Confederates are pulling out of Paris, Kentucky, and a few thousand Unionists are coming towards Paris, Kentucky. The overall Union commander decides not to attack. Could have been one of those great what-ifs, or is maybe a great what-if. Maybe Morgan's command would have been shattered right then and there. And Morgan easily slips back out of the state going back to Sparta, Tennessee. So it is, you know, not a, not a big action. It's a small action. It is not overwhelming in terms of its import to the war, except maybe bringing Bragg and Kirby Smith into Kentucky. So maybe it does have a, a strong foundation there. I, I think one thing which you mentioned, uh, when they keep hearing about the support they're going to receive in Kentucky, and then you start describing the battle, I could only think that does not sound like support to me at all. <laughs> yeah, he does get support from civilians. I mean, right. they pour out, they feed the feed the men. But again, this is Harrison County, Kentucky, pro-Southern to begin with, but the men aren't joining. The men aren't joining up. Again, some some around Georgetown, but for the most part, they're just not supporting. As, as a matter of fact, there's, there's one comment about a couple of Union prisoners noting how that the women came out and gave all the Confederates, you know, cake. And, and they're like, well, don't they know that union men like too? I mean, it was just, you know, kind of funny from that aspect. But no, there's, there's that support's not really there. I mean, it's great that Morgan's here, yay, but uh, I'm not going to join you. And this, 
I think Bragg kind of sums it up a little bit later too, but you know, the Kentuckians are, are too rich on their horses, right? It's like, why should I go join? Why should I go fight? I, I'm, I'm making a great living here. I'm selling goods to the North. I'm selling, I hate to say it, but I'm selling slaves to the South. Kentucky was a huge slave seller prior to the war. I'm making money, so why should I join, right? Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, and I, again, I would pinpoint that John 16th, yeah, it's a stretch, but might be the start of the Perryville campaign. <laughs> so, uh, so you think, in, in your opinion, most of it was that in Kentucky, it wasn't necessarily loyal or political beliefs. It was the fact that they're making money. Why, why ruin a good thing? Well, um, you do mention the word loyal, and, and, and Kentuckians are unionists. They are loyal to the union. Now, when the Emancipation Proclamation comes out, that changes. They think that Lincoln sold them out. And you will see a slew of Kentucky officers on the union side, they will resign their commissions. So they're unionists, but they're also pro-slavery. So they're, they're trying to take the best of both worlds, you know, best being the operative word. So they're trying to get that, you know, that into, into effect, but they're loyalists for the most part. Now, you'll see numbers of how many Kentuckians fought for each side, but you also have to temper that with later war units that were formed from the U.S. colored troops. Uh, Camp right. Nelson was a huge recruiting camp. So you have to temper that a little. There are a lot of Kentuckians that serve in the Confederacy, thousands of them. But in terms of this overall overarching state support, no, they're unionists. But uh, this is not the uh, last time that the war comes to Cynthiana, correct? Not at all. So um, there's a second battle that's fought in the summer of 1864. Um, but how do we get to there? Well, Morgan's raid, he comes back into Kentucky with uh, Kirby Smith. They have more fighting that takes place in 1862. Uh, as a matter of fact, he fights a, fights a battle on Three Clay's estate in Lexington, practically. Um, but he's not super successful. He was, he was detailed to go chase after George Washington Morgan, Union commander at Cumberland Gap, who pulled his forces out of Cumberland Gap march across some really barren and rural areas of Kentucky and get them all the way back to the Ohio River. And Morgan and Humphrey Marshall, a couple other people were detached to, to keep that from happening. And, and Morgan had some pulses of misses in that aspect. But like I said, they'll fight this, this battle on Henry Clay's estate. That's in, after the Battle of Perryville. That's his post Perryville. And then they'll retreat down to Tennessee. In Tennessee, in December of 1862, Morgan will marry his second wife, Maddie Reedy, or Reddy, um, R-E-A-D-Y. Uh, it's presided over by Leonidas Polk, um, you know, the, the general, the Bishop, Bishop Polk, pretty big to-do there in Greensboro, right before the Stones River campaign starts. And then into early 1863, into the first part of 1863, Morgan's command is on what I would call the east flank. Uh, Force is on the west flank, Morgan's on the east flank. And Morgan has, a, has several encounters, March, April, May, that kind of thing, that do not go very well. The Union Cavalry is getting better. They're becoming more equipped. Of course, Rosecrans is now in charge. He's demanding more equipage for his cavalry forces. And so they're becoming more equipped. And they're very successful on that eastern flank. The Unionists are uh, uh, punching Morgan in the nose. On the western flank, that's a different story. Force is pretty aggressive. But on the eastern flank, force isn't, or Morgan's not doing so well. And part of it is, is Morgan's not with his command. His headquarters are several miles in the rear, away from where his command is, closer to Murfreesboro, where his new wife is staying. 
prior to Stones River, and then after Stones River, they're further south, but he's still within reach to go visit her whenever he can. He only goes to the front one or two days a week. So his command gets punched in the nose and he's starting to lose his reputation. So then what happens? Well, he gets, he gets permission to do another raid into Kentucky to disrupt the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which is one of Ro Rosecrans, it is Rosecrans' primary supply line. And he is ordered by Bragg to not go north of the Ohio River, direct order. He's also ordered, I believe, by Joe Wheeler that if he gets word that Rosecrans' army starts to move, to come back and support the army. So he devised two orders. He has in his mind, he's going across the Ohio River, and he does. Starts the Great Raid of 1863. Some people might think that's a fantastic raid. And you may notice by some of my choice of words, I'm not a Morgan fan. I think he is successful early, but I think he is blown out of proportion, I guess, like a lot of leaders are, I guess. Morgan fan, especially the 1863 raid, because he takes 2,500 men and basically loses his entire command. That's a small division. Now, how effective that division would have been for Bragg during the Tullahoma campaign, it's hard to say. As again, what ifs. But I'd rather have 2,500 more cavalry that I could use to scout and skirmish and raid closer. Um, so I'm not a big fan of his, uh, even though I'm on the Buffington Island Preservation uh, Battlefield or Battlefield Preservation Foundation, I'm not a big fan of Morgan's 1863 raid because I think it just destroys a cavalry um, force. A friend of mine, Dave Mowry, wrote a book on that. Uh, Dave's of the belief that it, it slows Burnside down from coming to Knoxville. I don't agree with that necessarily because Burnside had lost two of his divisions of the Ninth Corps down to Vicksburg, he, Burnside was not going to move out of Cincinnati until those two divisions came back. And the raid is long over by the time that happened. So I, I'm not really sure the impact on Tullahoma, Knoxville, and Chickamauga because of that. But anyway, I think Morgan's trying to redeem himself. Of course, Morgan is captured in Ohio about 90 miles from Cleveland is where he is captured. And he is thrown in the Ohio State Penitentiary with uh, a few dozen of his officers. They plan a daring raid. He escapes on November 27th, 1863, hops on a train, rides through Cincinnati, rides and then gets into Kentucky, and rejoins the Confederacy. He's not very popular. Um, Bragg, by this point, has replaced as commander of the Army of Tennessee on the Confederate side. But now Bragg has the ear of Jefferson Davis because now he's one of Jefferson Davis's military advisor, key military advisor. Bragg wants Mar Morgan court-martialed. And charges are start to are, are being brought up. There are a few murders along the way on the 1863 raid of civilians. It happens on both sides. We know that. But so there's this, you defied orders. You conducted a raid that you were not supposed to conduct. You went north of the Ohio River. Bragg wants him up on charges. In the meantime, Morgan goes to Joe Johnston, says, can you give me back the remnant of my command that did escape from Ohio? Joe Johnston kind of doesn't really do that. He winds up giving him basically the equivalent of one battalion. And Morgan will put out flyers and advertisements in the newspapers, and he will, he will recruit anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 men. He is stationed in southwestern Virginia. He's under the command of William Grumble Jones. And Morgan gets it in his head that he's going to go raid in Kentucky again. Now, Jones wants him close by. As a matter of fact, Grumble Jones will be killed at the Battle of Piedmont. I think it's on June 5th of 1864. Morgan should have been there with his 2,500 to 3,000 men, but he wasn't. Because Morgan is pushing through Pound Gap and pushing into Kentucky, defying orders once again. 
So he comes into Kentucky through some of the, again, most rugged type of terrain, very rural out that way. Uh, they'll fight a skirmish at Mount Sterling, Kentucky, uh, on June 8th. He'll push in. He'll actually control Lexington for a period of time. He will visit the family home the last time. And then on June 11th, the night of June 10th and super early on the morning of June 11th, they're pushing towards Cynthiana again. That leads to the second battle of Cynthiana. So what is he what is he doing? He's trying to redeem himself. Is he just a natural cavalier and this is what he does and this is what he knows? What, what's going on here? Well, I, I, yeah, I think you, you, you've pinpointed a couple of facets right there. Um, it's the cavalier, right? He's the thunderbolt of the Confederacy. He's been propped up in the newspapers. He's been, uh, when he goes to Richmond, uh, Virginia, after he comes back from his uh, incarceration, he is like thrown major parties. I mean, you know, him and his wife are like the talk of the town. So it, I think it's building his ego back up again. The problem is, is he doesn't have the Englishman, Grenville. Mm. He's no longer with the command. And Duke is still a prisoner of war from the Great Raid. So he doesn't have his discipline guys with him either. What this happened to, to um, uh, Grenville again? Um, at that point, I think he was discouraged because he wanted command of the second brigade uh-huh. during that great raid, and he didn't get command of it. Adam Rankin Johnson did, and I think he's getting disgruntled with Morgan, and then he'll actually get involved in what's called the Great Northwest Conspiracy, which is a whole other untold history for you. So he's he's involved with this other thing that's going on, and then Duke, like I said, he, Duke is still in prison, so he doesn't have his tactics and discipline guys any longer, and what he recruits. Um, I always imagine Cold Mountain, where the local Confederates are terrorizing the local citizens. I picture some of those guys because um, uh, Dr. Uh, James Ramage wrote a bio on Morgan called Rebel Raider, uh, 1986, I think. It's still the best bio. And Ramage will describe an attempted rape uh, of Morgan's men as they are moving from one part to another to join his command of Southern women. So it's, you know, I, I just picture that cold mountain kind of scene where they're terrorizing the local citizenry. So he's got all kinds of guys with him that have no business being with them that are just riding for glory and really for booty. They will rob um, banks in Mount Sterling, in Win- Winchester, and in Richmond or in Lexington. They will attempt to rob the bank in Georgetown, Kentucky. Uh, but one of Morgan's commanders uh, is from Georgetown and he stops that from happening. So there's this there's a whole other deeper story there that goes along with that. But they will move towards Cynthiana again. And, and you know, again, why? Glory hound? Sure. Maybe like seeing his name in the paper? Maybe. Trying to redeem himself? Yeah, that, that's probably part of it too. It was a great raid. And then uh, that whole preceding portion of 1863 was not great for him. So I think it's a, all these different pieces. So the second battle starts. It start, starts again. It's, it's a hot, hot morning. Um, what's in front of him at this point is the 168th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, five companies. They are 100 men. They have only been, they're, they're actually former Ohio National Guard, that they are pulled into service simply to guard railroads, depots, prisoner war camps, to free up other volunteer regiments to go to the front, right? For the, like, for all Grant's big push. Right, uh, right. You know, Atlanta campaign, et cetera. These guys aren't, they're not deemed for action. They shouldn't be in action. And they have 100 home guards. So there's about 350 unionists there. Morgan, by this point, probably has 1,500 men or so. He lost some in the fighting at Mount Sterling. 
a lot of them are deserting. They don't want to, either they don't like him, his command, or they're just out for themselves. But he will do the same tactic. He'll split his force into two this time. He'll send uh, one force around to the east. They'll come in from the eastern side. He will take the main body right up the middle. The 168th Ohio had it encamped on the south side of the river, so they will form a defensive line behind a stone wall with the river to their back, which was not a great choice. Um, yeah. <laughs> they will also hole up in the town. They'll hole up in the depot. They'll hole up in the Rankin house again. So it's a repeat in some aspects. That fighting lasts maybe an hour. It's super early in the morning, 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., depending on what, what time, what source you use. And so there's another force coming from Cincinnati. This is the 171st Ohio Infantry with a couple other detachments. And the 171st is also a 100 days regiment. Commanding that force is a guy with, by the last name of Hobson. And Hobson had been one of the guys who chased Morgan in 1863. When they get to the railroad crossing about a mile north of Cynthiana, the bridge had been burned. One of Morgan's great tactics was to send out scouting parties all over the place to cause disruption. And on June 8th, three days before, they had come in and burned the bridge. Hobson will detrain his force north of Cynthiana. Um, they are going to march into town. But by that point, the, the 168th has already surrendered. Some of them have fled and are fleeing back towards along the railroad, back towards um, Hobson's position. They don't know Hobson's there, but they're fleeing back. They tell Hobson about the Confederates being there. Um, some of the Confederates see these fleeing men and chase after them, and another fight breaks out, out a mile north. It's called Keller's Bridge, or the Keller's Bridge fight, so about a mile north. Now, Hobson is, Hobson, they'll put up a pretty good fight. These, these greenhorns from the 168, they'll fight for hours. And by this point, too, part of Morgan's command is running out of ammunition. They fought at Mount Sterling. They had fought now in the morning of June, uh, uh, June 11th in town. They're now fighting again. They're starting to run low of ammunition. Hobson puts up a good fight. Morgan will eventually himself come to the battlefield. That's another point of contention with some of the subcommanders. He will come up from the rear, so they will box Hobson in this loop of the uh, south branch, south of the Looking River. Hobson has nowhere to go. He forms basically essentially a giant square uh, and he will continue to fight. So he'll fight for a few hours. And then negotiations for surrender start. And that takes four more hours, four hours. Don't know why they're negotiating, but four hours. So Hobson has delayed Morgan for at least six hours, two hours of fighting, four hours potentially of the surrender negotiation. It's now mid-afternoon and Morgan decides to stay in Cynthiana instead of moving on. Well, unlike 1862, there's an aggressive Union force chasing after him under the um, command of Stephen Gannot Burbridge. And Burbridge had ridden, was going to do a raid into southwestern Virginia, gets word that Morgan moves through Pound Gap, turns around and starts to chase. They will arrive in Lexington. They get word that Morgan is moving towards Paris and not Cynthiana, so they'll go to Paris. That's why they're not involved on June 11th. And then they get word that there's fighting going on and they will move their command early morning of June 12th, and they will have another fight at Cynthiana because Morgan stayed, even though he's running low on ammunition. And they will form a, uh, a line to the eastern part of the town on the, on the hills above. There's a cemetery there now called Battle Grove Cemetery. It was not there at the time. And a fight will break out early in the morning of June 12th. This fight lasts maybe an hour. Burbridge has 2,000 to 2,500 men. Morgan, by this point, probably has 1,000 to 1,200. 
running low in ammunition. Burbage pushes up against the position. They hold for a bit. Burbage pushes up again with more troops on either flank. Confederates will fall back a little bit. They'll hold again. And then Burbage will just bust that whole line open. And the, the command, the Morgan's command is now shattered. Morgan is still on the in all field. Kinds of directions. Morgan's still on the field in the early part of that fighting. But when the route starts, he will head northeast out of town with part of his command. And you know, they're, they're hitting the highway. They're, they're out of there. So now we've taken another Confederate command of anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 men to start with. Now, not the best men in the world. And now this command is now shattered. So Morgan will get himself back into southwestern Virginia, then move. Uh, he'll be in Tennessee. He's defying orders yet again because he is supposed to be, um, I don't know if it's the beginning of the court martial proceedings, but he's been basically said, told, hold still, stay right there in southwestern Virginia. You're coming up on charges. Well, he'll take whoever's left of that command and they'll move down to Greenville, Tennessee, where they where he is surprised overnight and he is shot as he is uh, trying to flee, allegedly, um, depending on who you listen to, in a, in a garden behind a, a massive mansion. The mansion's still there. It's been refurbished, evidently. And so because he, he, he was never going to allow himself to be uh, captured again, I think his passionate relationship with his second wife uh, think, I, I think damages him, to be honest with you. Again, not being at the front earlier in 1863, that kind of thing. So he, he said, I, he's like, I am never being captured again. I'm never going to be away from my wife. So he tries to flee instead of surrendering, and that's when he's shot. And so that, unfortunately, ends John H. Morgan's career. Um, and I did the second battle really quickly, because I know we're probably getting pressed for time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so he is eventually killed. Uh, he never has to yes. face the uh, court-martial. How do these engagements, and you sort of mentioned some of it, how do these engagements affect the overall outcome of the war? Now, I know one of the things you mentioned is, first of all, you lose a lot of soldiers, and you think about the Confederacy and their, you know, their low supply of manpower. This is not mm -hmm. something you want to have happen again and again and again. Right. Um, well, I alluded to already to the impact of his telegram during the first campaign, the first raid, bringing, I think, kind of being that tipping point to bring Confederates in the state of Kentucky, which leads to the, the Battle of Perryville, which is a which is tactical victory, but it's a strategic defeat once Bragg realizes that Buell's, almost Buell's entire army is still there. And so it leads to that. Now, people will, some people will say that's a disastrous campaign. I don't necessarily agree. Bragg is able to come in. He's able to, to sequester supplies. He's also able to keep the Union forces away from Chattanooga for another year, because they had been moving to Chattanooga over the summer of 1862, good chance they would have taken it. So this pushes back, you know, the whole middle Tennessee and then northern Georgia, this pushes it back for a year. Uh, and he is, like I said, he's able to get some supplies. Um, they, they wind up recruiting about one-tenth of the men. They get about 2,500 to 3,000 men recruiting in Kentucky. So they do get a few recruits. So that's that impact of the first battle. The second battle, I really don't think it has much of an impact other than destroying another command as, as well as tarnishing Morgan's reputation. When I read a lot of different books about Morgan or you know, references, you'll, you'll see they will, a lot of these books will go from the Great Raid to his death. They never even talk about this last Kentucky raid because it's not favorable. It's, right. it's very much not favorable. So we've got 
Morgan at his height in 1862 and Morgan at his worst in 1864, or lowest tide. But the 1864, well, Grumble Jones is killed at the Battle of Piedmont. Um, maybe the maybe the Shenandoah Valley doesn't fall as early. I mean, there's there's a lot of what ifs. What ifs yeah. I, I try to stay away from the what ifs because you just you just never know, right? Right. You just never know. It's like when people say, "Well, Jackson had been at Gettysburg." Well, we see Jackson's performance during the Seven Days Battles. What if he had that same kind of performance? You just never know what kind of right. day a guy is going to have. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and and the other one, if the the British had come on the uh, Confederate side and showed up. You know, <laughs> yeah, oh, that would have yeah, turned. Yeah, right. I mean, that would have turned, and maybe the Russians didn't want to attack the attack the British. Nobody right. remembers oh, yeah. that. Support of the Russians were of the of the yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's what I that's what I want to see. I want to see a whole what if with the uh, you know Siam elephants, uh, Russian Cossacks, and uh, the Coldstream <laughs> Guard. You know, formed in square. I'd love to see that. <laughs> that would be. It would be very, very colorful. That is yeah. <laughs> But oh ultimately, <laughs> why do you think these battles are in the realm of untold civil war? Well, I mean, you could probably put a poll up. How many people have heard of the battles of Cynthia, Kentucky, right? right. That, that might tell you. I think the, the story's been getting out there more in the last few years. But I think overall, you know, they're small, right? If you're a Morgan guy, you know the first one. You may ignore the second one. I just think because there's small actions in a small town that there is no preservation. So you can't really, there's a, there's a bit of a tour, uh, but you really can't envision a lot of it. Now the Keller's bridge fighting is there's 104 acres on the national historic landmark registry. Um, it'd be awesome to preserve that as a battlefield preserve and, and allow, you know, create visitation out there. Uh, that would be, I think an ideal situation, but there's not really a strong grassroots movement to get that pushed through, unfortunately. Um, I just think it's, you know, you don't, you can't really visit it. You can't really understand it because there's not interpretation there. Right. So I think it just gets overlooked to that aspect as well. I mean, I never, I never went there until six, seven years ago. And I've lived in my area for my entire life and still never went there and yeah. finally did. And it's like, okay. I'm, I'm kind of hooked a little bit now. How can people get access to your tours and be able to go on these tours of these battlefields? Because I know after listening to this, they're going to want to do that. Well, I hope so, right? I mean, just to get, because we can see sites. We can, even though I said, well, there's not a lot to see. That's partially not true. Battle Grove Cemetery is a beautiful site. It has one of the oldest Confederate monuments in the United States in that cemetery. Um, we can get out on Keller's Bridge. I have uh, permission from the landowner to walk out on the Keller's Bridge. It was privately owned, um, but I've gotten permission to do that. So there are stories to be told. When I do a full Cynthiana tour, I cover both battles. We do a walking tour in town of the first battle. Uh, very easy, very flat. And then we do like a car caravan of the second battle. We'll go out to Keller's Bridge and then we go out to the third phase where Burbridge comes in and defeats Morgan out by the uh, cemetery. So uh, it is definitely, you can do a full day. I could do a half day for people. It's whatever folks want to do. Uh, if they go to my website, walkingwithhistory.com, uh, you can contact me through there. My email is on there. It's Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at walkingwithhistory.com. Uh, I do work full time, but I, you know, with advanced notice and arrangement, I am happy to lead tours there at Cynthiana for people. I also do tours at some other sites as well. Um, 
but happy to share that story. I have a lot of first person accounts, some humorous accounts as well, uh, some sad tales as well. Uh, I share, I, I will read a last letter written to a wife back home in Ohio. And there's a lot more to that story than just that. So, um, so happy to lead folks there. Uh, there is a, and we, you and I talked about this a little bit at the very, very beginning before we got started. There is a fantastic brewery downtown. They've got a couple of nice restaurants we can have a good meal, whether it's country cooking or, you know, something a little different. Um, and I always like to end tours with, a, you know, a quaffing of the thirst, that is for sure. <laughs> and uh, and these these tours, I know you mentioned a little bit of hiking. Uh, are these geared to, you know, uh, more of the fitness group or all ages or younger people, older people, families? Um, actually, I can. I, I can accommodate anything to be blatantly honest with you at Perryville. It's going to be hiking. Cause there's, there's, there's not a road network really. So Perryville is going to be some up and downs, um, but I've had families. I've had young children at Perryville walk in the fields with us. Um, if you want a shorter or easier, I can cater that Cynthiana, super easy. The, the walking tour portion is uh, less than a mile and it's all on sidewalks. So it's, that's super easy. And like I said, the other portion is car caravan. We don't hike in that car caravan. We just go to a spot. Well, we would walk up to the hilltop on Keller's Bridge, but that's you know 25 foot change of elevation. It's nothing. Um, so I can cater to fitness levels as, as needed as well. Um, I, I do a little tour of downtown Augusta, which is another Morgan's command fight. He's not there himself, but Basil Duke is. You know, that's walking around town, pointing out sites and telling the stories. Perryville, we can do full Monty, you know, three days of hiking and getting on private ground and seeing you know, the Confederate cemetery that rarely, not the one that's in the park itself, but another one that's on private property. Um, so there's those aspects to do. Um, so it just really depends what people want to do. At Wildcat Mountain, we can do a shorter hike or we can hike from the bottom all the way up, which is about eight miles round trip. So it's there's whatever folks really want to try to do. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I always ask this on every show uh, or every episode, I should say, is there any books that you recommend uh, in regards? To well, this topic? Um, yeah, for Cynthia, I will, I will definitely, again, allude to William Penn, Kentucky Rebel Town. I think it's 2016 University of Kentucky Press It is a extremely well-written book. Now it's very detailed. And if, so if you, if you don't want a local history of Harrison County, okay, well, maybe that won't work for you. But it, it has a full chapter on the first battle and three full chapters on the second battle, each phase. And it is extremely well done. So that's the, that, that would be the book to get um, to cover this specific thing, yes. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Have a great night. Thank you for listening while you walked the dog, drove home after a long day at work, holding the sunken road at Sharpsburg, battling for possession of the guns at Bull Run, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Please don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, sign up on Patreon to get exclusive access to upcoming interviews, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And of course, if so inclined, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps to get the word out. Be safe, and I hope you tune in next time for the next episode.